Hope y'all are doing well. We have been going through the book of March. I'm sorry, the book of March. The book of Mark. <clears throat> I just learned to talk last week. We've been going through the book of Mark this particular month. And as we've been going through the book of Mark, we've been kind of highlighting healings and miracles. Some of the, the amazing, like, whoa, that's amazing kind of thing that, that Jesus did for such, uh, for examples like feeding of 5,000 people with just a few pieces of bread, walking on water, things like that. And so the capstone of this uh, Springs of Hope series is going to be looking at Jesus and his transfiguration. Now, perhaps that's new to you or you have no idea what I'm talking about. Uh, You'll see it all. So if you have a Bible, you can open open up to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. And that's where we'll be today. Uh, We're going to look at the transfiguration. Um, And by the end of this, you're all going to be transfiguration experts. Like if anybody ever asks you anything about the transfiguration, you'll be able to answer any question they have. Probably not. I'm just kidding. But let's pray. And then we'll uh, ask the Lord to do an amazing work in our hearts and minds as we look at Mark chapter 9. Um, and then uh, there's, there's some things I want you to see in the text regarding Christ's identity and how he's revealed himself. But let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word. As we'll see today, your word is absolutely amazing what it does. It's incredible and how it absolutely points us to you, points us to your glory, points us to your gospel, and what it can do for us. Train us in righteousness. Lead us into Christ. Show us how to be more holy. It it cuts down into our hearts and doesn't let us be fake it never ever allows us to get away with anything like that. But instead shows us who we are, shows us who you are. And always with the power of your spirit leads us into everlasting life. And I pray, Lord, that it would be no different this morning. That you would use your word in our minds and in our hearts today to draw us to you. I love you, Lord. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So um, I have a lot of kids and I've noticed as... Uh, we've had different ages, you know, whenever, we have an 11-year-old right now, and that's quite unique, especially whenever they're female. Um, but as you go down, I'm, no, like, it's, anyway, so as you go down, I, I shouldn't have said that, but as you're going down the ages, uh, there's this little awesome age whenever they're around two to three that's just incredible. So anything you do at age two to three, they do it too. So if I come home and I put on a hat, then they'll put on a hat. I've just noticed this over and over. If I sit down at the table when we're eating and I put my elbow on the table, then I have a, a little one and a half year old Liam. He does the same thing. He, he, anytime, anytime I'm kind of doing anything, walking around the house, even Aiden, my other son, whenever I was, whenever I was there uh, at home and I come home from work, etc. It's like, hey, you're home. And then they follow me around. If I walk through, the, it's just whatever you're doing. I can be cutting the grass and he gets out his little bubble mower and he wants to try to cut the grass or he wants my mower and you know we don't want that so like my point is um to to a good degree and even to a scary degree children watch you and as they watch you they do what you do now as a parent that can certainly be absolutely scary because there's lots of things that I don't want them to watch and do uh and like don't be like me like that I want to grow and and be more Christ-like but my whole point is as they look at me as they watch what I'm doing they do it as well This is biblical, and that's really the point of what we're talking about here. The whole idea of the transfiguration is Jesus goes up on a mountain and literally, like, 
displays some level, maybe not the fullness, but some level of his glory, turns himself into this really bright, bright being before his three inner close disciples, and they behold his glory. And so the application for us certainly is, hey, they beheld the glory of Jesus, so for us, we need to, in our certain ways, be able to behold the glory of Jesus. But, but to what end? Just to behold glory? No. The beholding or looking to the glory of Jesus, and we can't do it in the same way as the disciples. We're not going to have Jesus come down, take us up to a mountain um, anywhere around here, and then transfigure in front of us to show us his glory. So it's different for us, but the application is the same. But to what end do we need to behold the glory of God? It's the same thing as I was talking about with my children. You, as you behold, you become like that. We... As we behold, we become like that. Or to say it a different way, we become like what we behold. As my children behold me or watch me or look at me, they become like me. They do what I do. They say what I say. They act the way I act. So in the same way, we want to behold Christ. So because as we behold Christ, we'll become like him. So here's my, my task, and I think it's a little bit different, um, difficult in, in, in sermons, is I want you and I want to say, hey, listen, there's Christ. Behold his glory. And you're like, okay, I'm going to behold his glory. Now what? I mean, there he is. That's pretty awesome. So I don't mean like behold the glory of Christ like a firework show. You know, you go to a firework show and they go up in the air and you're like, ah, oh, mm, do you see that one? Ooh. All right. Everybody get your chairs and put them in the car. Let's go home and, you know, eat some steak or whatever. That's not... I don't mean like behold the glory of God in such a way where you just admire it. You think it's great. And then you're like, okay, um, what's next on the menu? That's not what I mean. I mean behold the glory of God in such a way that as you see it, you're in so in awe of it. You're so enamored of it that you're literally drawn to the glory of God. And as you behold, you become like what you behold. In the same way that as our kids watch us, they become like us. This is all from the scriptures. In 2 Corinthians 3, 18, it says, And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of God. So as we behold the glory of God, what happens to us? We are being transformed into that same image. So the idea of beholding the glory of God, to what end? To the end of being transformed into that same image. I think if we took a survey or a poll of any Christian here. Hey, Christian, do you want to become more like Christ? Would you like to be transformed more and more into Christ's likeness? We would all say yes. And we're like, how do I do that? And I say, behold the glory of God. Beholding the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. And this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So as we look at the transfiguration, which is the most incredible, unique display. There's, he only does this once. Display of God, Jesus, taking up his three inner uh, close disciples and displaying his glory. What we're learning from this is as they beheld the glory of God, they'll become more like him and therefore we should. So my task is this. This is the difficult part. I want you to behold the glory of God to become more like him. And you're saying, okay, that sounds good, but man, that's like nebulous. Help me, help me understand that because what you're telling me is just some big, huge truths, but I really like application too. Like, what does that look like on Tuesday when I'm driving to work? Behold the glory of God, like I'm driving. You know, like, help me understand what that means. I'm going to do my best 
to hold off to the end to try to give us the application. But we're going somewhere. But as we look at this, I want you to just do this with me. I want you to do your best to understand the big concept of beholding and understanding Christ, looking, listening, and learning out who he is. And then we'll talk about what application looks like at the end. All right? So here we go. Um, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. So let's, let's do this. We don't do this all the time, but um, let's, let's stand as we read uh, Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. We're honoring God's word. This is God's words to us. These are, I should say, God's words to us. Um, and so uh, this isn't me speaking. This isn't us just reading a book that Mark wrote. This is Mark writing by the power of the Holy Spirit to us. These are God's words. Mark chapter 9, verse 1. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John and led them up a high mountain uh, by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents, for you, three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. For he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, no longer, they no longer saw anyone with them, but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And as they asked, and they asked him, why do scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he, he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But, they, but I tell you that Elijah has come and they did to him whatever they please as it is written of him. We're, that last part we'll get to. I'll explain. You can have a seat. Um, so verses 1 through 13 I've entitled the sermon right there at the very end of verse 8 where it says Jesus only. Um, That's kind of really what we're focusing in on. And as we're looking at Jesus only, there's three things about Jesus' identity that are going to kind of come to the surface, bubble up to the surface about him that I want you to focus on. There's, There's three things about Christ's identity that I want you to know. And so they're all here in the text. Now, like I said, there's going to be some some information, some knowledge, some things about God first, and then we'll talk about what that means in everyday life. So look at verse 1. Uh, it, and some of your Bibles, likely the little transfiguration, uh, uninspired title is above verse 2. Uh, verse 1 goes, I think, with it, but we'll, we'll uh, explain verse 1 and keep going. It says, And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. So Christ is talking to his disciples and he's saying, there's some people here that aren't going to die before, it says, until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. In other words, you've got Christ coming to die on the cross. You've got the resurrection. And then after he resurrects, he ascends to heaven. And after he ascends, the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. And this is kind of the the issuing in or the beginning of this amazing kingdom that's being set up. And as he's saying, he's saying, hey, some of you that are here right now, 
Some of you are actually going to be alive when all that happens. It's going to happen soon, but some of you will not taste death. Some of you will still be alive in the next few years as this happens. And so he's talking about, if you look up with me to chapter 8, verse 31, he's talking about this particular situation. Now, 831, think of the book of Mark as kind of like a roller coaster. And uh, chapter 8, 31 is kind of like the very, very top. And now it's just like, we're zooming down to the very end, getting all the stuff done. 831 is kind of like, the, the turn there, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things. So he's talking about himself, and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed after three days rise again. So he's telling them, this is the turning point. Miracles and all these things have been happening. I've been doing all kinds of stuff. Now we're getting to the end. The turning point is coming. And listen, I know at Easter we make a big deal about Jesus rising from the dead, and like, is it, did it really happen? Did he really resurrect? I mean, think about this. Before he died, He's looking at people and he's literally calling it like in three days after I die, I'm coming back. So the idea that that actually happened, Jesus had been telling them already for a long time. That's just a side note. Back to verse two. All right. And it says, after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain. Now, we don't know which mountain. Some people say that it's uh, Mount Hermon. Some people say it's Mount Tabor. We don't know. I know y'all probably never been there. Neither have I. Uh, but it's one of those two. Just as a little side note, I think that this is quite interesting. I was reading a book on discipleship. Uh, it was written like in the 70s. This guy made this amazing point, right? He says if Jesus were being like rated as a pastor uh, slash, not even pastor, like just like us, like a regular, oh, we got to make disciples. If Jesus were being rated, people would think he didn't do a great job. You know, because for us, it's all like numbers. Numbers, numbers, numbers mean everything. Jesus had... 12 men that really super followed him. After that, maybe about 70. A congregation of 70. And really only hung out with three. Like, if a pastor did that, we'd be like, eh, you're average. You know? But like him, he has three that he, Peter, James, and John, that he absolutely hangs out with. The other 12 that are right around that. And then just a little bit more that kind of follow him around. Most of the people are like, eh, we're John 6-ish. Eat your flesh. What? We're out of here. You know, like, they don't necessarily follow him. But I say all that to say this. Peter, James, and John are the innermost ones. What is it that Jesus does in regard to making disciples that makes him so successful with them? What he does is he says, hey, 12 disciples, Peter, James, and John especially, I want you to follow me. We're going to go do everything. My life for the next three years, you're going to follow me around. Everywhere I go, you're going to see how I eat. You're going to watch the way I deal with people. At, there's not going to be any time where I'm just going to have to make sure I'm on my best behavior while you're around me and kind of put on the front. And I can do that for a good two hours. But instead, every moment of my day, you're just going to follow me around. You're going to watch me care for people. I'm going to teach you. You're just going to watch me do it. I say that to say, we're told in Matthew 28 to make disciples. And you're wondering, how can I do that most effectively? The way that you can make disciples most effectively probably is not meeting once a week with someone at Starbucks to have a controlled 45-minute Bible study, and then that's all they get from you, right? If they're a new convert and you're, you've been a Christian a long time and you want to make a disciple of them, probably make it look more like Christ. Yes, there's got to be that, that teaching time, but the better thing is like Jesus. Invite them to come and just follow you around life. Like, follow me and as much as you possibly can and we can. We're going to be together. We're going to eat together. We're going to go to parties together. We're going to be around people together. We're going to study the word together. We're going to pray together. You're just going to learn how to. That's the best way to make a disciple is literally invite them into your life. Everything that's going on. Because, I mean, I can 
sit down at Starbucks for an hour and theologize and make you think that I'm making a disciple of you and have the best behavior and then live like crazy the rest of the week and you would have no idea and we could both convince ourselves we're making disciples. Anyway, that's also a side note. So after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And this is where it says he was transfigured before them. Transfigured in the Greek is metamorpho. This is where we get our metamorphosis from. He was changed. In other words, this is what happens when it says he was transfigured before them. This is an outward visible sign of Jesus's inmost nature, a radical transfiguration that reveals his true essence in an outward visible manifestation. So this glory of Jesus was not kind of like, it wasn't imparted to him to put on display. It emanated from him. It's a big difference. We put, put on display the glory of God for others to see. It, if you will, it's Jesus is the sun and we're the moon and all we do is shine the light of Christ to other people. Jesus is the sun. The light or the transfiguration emanates from him. So there's a big difference. And as this happens, he literally transfigures himself. Now, I don't have a friend that's ever done this. I mean, no one's ever just said, hey, but I got a little deal I want to show you. Like, we're going we're gonna to walk out in the middle of nowhere. I'm going to just, like, all of a sudden turn into this amazing glow. Like, no one's ever done that. So you can just imagine Peter, James, and John. I mean, they knew Jesus was amazing, right? But just consider. I mean, I'm, maybe you've read this. But just consider. Enter into this for the very first time as they would. No, this, is the, this is unique. It never happened before. You have been walking around with Jesus. You've seen him feed 5,000 people. You've seen him walk on water. You've seen some amazing things. But all of a sudden, he invites just the three of you, six-day walk up this huge high mountain. I mean, that's a long way. And all of a sudden, he literally metamorphosizes. That's not a word. I'm just trying to use the Greek word. He transfigures in front of them. And it, this is what it looks like. He transfigures before them, and this is what happens. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. Clorox ain't got nothing on Jesus. There's not a cleaners that can beat him. No one can get as white as this. Like, this is crazy, 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 brilliant, brilliant, intensely, intensely, as Luke says, dazzling white. It's as, it's as white as it can possibly get. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white. This is how it says it in, in Matthew, as, as all these accounts. So, what, what's going on? I mean, first of all, he's transfiguring. He's displaying deity to him. He's wanting them to see that he is absolutely God. And in his glorified form, maybe it's not the fullness of his glory, because maybe it would just kill him if it was, but it's certainly some level of his glory that they're getting to partake and see. Um, they're getting a, a taste, if you will, of his boundless glory. And he's wanting them to see that he is deity. And it's interesting. I was reading one commentator. It says that it becomes radiant, intensely white, dazzling white, face shone like the sun, white as light, as no, earth, no one on earth could bleach them. This is putting on display the purity of Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the absolute perfect righteousness that Jesus has. And don't miss this. For those of you that have put your faith in God, that righteousness has been imputed into you. So as wide as and pure as this can possibly be, for those that are in Christ, don't miss. That is what has been declared on you. 
Clorox ain't got nothing on the righteousness that you've been imputed from Christ. <laughs> That's just amazing. I need to hear that every day. As dirty as a sinner as I can walk through life and constantly kind of be bombarded by the lies of Satan that I am, I need to be reminded, wow, as transfigured white as Jesus was, righteous, pure as Jesus was in this, that's what he has declared of me. So the first thing I want you to see, I want you to know Christ's identity. As it says here, there appeared also Elijah and Moses and they were talking with Jesus. That's a little section two to four. What I want you to see is this, point number one, to know Christ's identity by look, looking, I should say looking, looking at the boundless glory of Jesus. The first thing, and all three of these are going to be alliterated with the letter L, so you can remember them. Um, that's the way that they want us to remember how to do CPR and stuff like that. Maybe that's look, listen, and feel. Never mind. Um, so anyway, uh, we want you here, first here to look. So when you're looking at the boundless glory of Jesus, what am I looking at, Fud? What is it that you, or I should say, Jesus wants me to see? The first thing is that he wants you to see, as it, I noted there in verses 3, Two and three is transfigured before them. His clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. The first thing that we need to behold is his deity. Christ was God but, and man. But as in this particular instance, um, he goes up on the mountain. As he goes up on the mountain, he transfigures. Now, there's another mountain. This particular text, Matthew 17, Luke chapter 9, Mark chapter 9, is going to put on display the deity of God, the deity of Jesus on the mountain. There's also put on display the humanity of Jesus on a mountain. That's later on, right before he goes to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's also on a mountain. With God, everything's happening on mountains. But here in this particular text, the deity is being put in display of Jesus. Later on, the, the, the garden is his humanity. But here, the first thing that he wants you to see, he wants you to behold, he wants you to behold his deity. Because, as we said in 2 Corinthians 3.18, the basic principle is, you become what you behold. You become what you behold. Whatever you're looking at, whatever you're beholding, whatever it is that captures your awe, captures your affections, captures your heart and your soul, you will become like that. You'll become more and more like that. So he's wanting us to behold his deity. Not just that. There's something else because it says there in verse 4, and there appeared to him Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Now, Mark wrote this gospel. He got it from Peter. So Peter and Matthew uh, wrote Matthew. And even Luke, Luke got his gospel from just doing interviews. But how is it that in that moment, Peter, James, and John, as they're looking, they know that it's Elijah and Moses. I mean, there wasn't Facebook. He didn't have his old Twitter profile that had just been sitting around dormant for 2,000 years. It was like, ah, oh, I've seen his Twitter pic. Like, I know who he is. That's Moses. Um, there wasn't, you know, like baseball cards like flipping through who is he like how is it that he knows the answer is we don't know but we do know that he does know so <laughs> there's that mystery solved but the point is that it says and there appeared to him Elijah with Moses Elijah with Moses why is it that those two particular people come why not David why not Adam why not Samuel why not you know pick whoever you want why Elijah and Moses what's going on and the reason, when we figure that out, then we'll see the second thing we need to behold. So Elijah and Moses in the Old Testament represent two key things regarding the writings of the Old Testament. Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. And Moses himself 
He went up on the mountain and was given the law. He also went up on a mountain and there was the promised land. And he didn't get to go on the promised land because he had disobeyed God. And God buried Moses. We never found him. But Moses represents the law. Moses represents the first five books of the Bible. Moses represents the giving of the law. Elijah was one of the very first prophets. And so the reason why Moses and Elijah were there, because while Moses represents kind of the giving of the law and all that the law gives in the Old Testament, Elijah represents the prophets uh, section of the Old Testament. So as we see, here are Elijah and Moses there. What we're supposed to behold then, because we have Moses, Elijah, and who else? Jesus. And so as we see that, we're supposed to behold Christ as the fulfillment of the law and the fulfillment of the, pro- of the prophets. When we see this, we're supposed to behold the fact that the Old Testament and the law and prophets has been screaming out of this coming Messiah for years and years and years and years. And here's Christ now, the representative that fulfills both the law and the prophets. And he is the true and better Moses. He is the true and better Elijah. Here is Jesus. Now behold the fulfillment of both the law and prophets. So, let me, let me tease that out a little bit more. Moses represents the law, which was given on Mount Sinai. So Moses represents, in a lot of ways, the bringing of death. We know that the law helps us see that we're sinners. I mean, that's the law. it tells us in Romans, what was the law given for? Well, basically, if there was no law, we wouldn't know that we were sinners. But since there's a law, and it's, here's all the things you should and shouldn't do, and you're like, oh, I'll break all those. <laughs> okay, so now that I realize, what does that get me? Well, what's behind door three? Death. That's what it gets me. That's what the law brings to us is death. The law cannot save. The law brings to us the knowledge that we're sinners and brings death. So in a lot of ways, Moses represents the bringing of death because he brings the law to us. And Jesus is going to be the truer and better Moses. And there's a lot of overlap from Moses receiving the law on Mount Sinai and Exodus to this particular text. Moses goes up with three named persons plus 70 elders up to the mountain, Exodus 24. Jesus takes his three disciples up the mountain. Moses' skin shines when he descends from the mountain. I just read that in Exodus, I'm sorry, 2 Corinthians 3.18. That's the account um, of Paul looking back and he says, just as Moses' face was shined when he came down the mountain. As we behold the glory of God, we also do. So Moses' face shined, but his was different. It didn't emanate from him. It came from an external source. Jesus literally emanates from himself. So Moses' skin shines as he descends the mountain. Jesus is transfigured, and his clothes become radiantly white. God appeared in a veiled form in an overshadowing cloud in Exodus 23. Here, the same thing. The voice appears, as it says, God appears in a veiled form in this overshadowing cloud in Mark chapter 9, uh, verse 7. A voice speaks from the cloud in Exodus 24. And the same thing, a voice speaks from the cloud in Mark 9, 7. People are afraid to come near to Moses after he descends from the mountain. And in this particular people, uh, verse, the people are astonished when they see Jesus after he descends from the mountain in Mark 9, 15. So it, and just in this particular picture, Jesus is being represented as the truer and better Moses, where Moses brings law and brings death. Jesus is the f- fulfillment of the law, and he is the one that gives us life. Keep going, Elijah. He's the prophet. Prophets in the Old Testament were both foretelling and forthtelling. It's just the easiest way to remember it. Like, what are the, what are the prophets doing in the Old Testament? It's, they almost sound the same. They foretell and they forthtell. They foretell, you know, like, here's what's going to happen. In the future, if you don't yada yada, here's what's going to happen. But forthtelling is that, thus says the Lord. Like, they have the ability to say, listen, 
you better get your junk straight. <laughs> that's the forth telling. Like when a parent says, you have got to stop acting this way. That's them being forth telling. And so, or that's going to happen. That's the foretelling part. So prophets had this dual role of being foretelling and forth telling. And Christ is the fulfillment. He is the prophet for us. So as Moses brought death, as Elijah, the first prophet, he spoke to uh, the people for God. He represents all of the prophets and he foretells and foretells. So as Moses brings death, the words of Elijah bring the hope. They don't bring life. They bring the hope of life because prophets are continually foretelling of this coming Messiah. There is the anointed one that's going to come, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, etc., etc., who will be the one that's going to take away our sins. And so Jesus is the truer and greater Elijah who also foretells his death and foretells, foretells to the people that they need to trust in him, to follow him, to receive faith. So as Moses brings death or represents the bringing of death through the law, Elijah represents the, the bringing of hope for life. Jesus fulfilled those and he's literally the giver of life. So as we're looking and as we're beholding, he's wanting us to see Christ in his deity and see his glory, but also see all of the work that he's done and all the fulfillments of the Old Testament and see that, look to Christ and realize that he is the one who is the giver of life. He is the giver of life. Now, I've had an opportunity um, to be able to do this numerous times in ministry, numerous times in ministry where uh, I've had conversations with people who are not believers or um, first-time Christians. And as that happens, I have this... You don't have to be in ministry to do it. You can have this unique opportunity to do it as well. I'll tell you two quick ones. One time, uh, Dr. Reed, my professor that came here, I don't know, like a year ago, um, he in seminary made us do these car car washes. I think I've told the story before, but I don't know. These car washes, I did not like them whatsoever. Um, Basically, we set up this car wash, and people would come in, and there were five of us. Um, the reason why I didn't like them is because, like, cold call uh, evangelism to, to strangers has always freaked me out a little bit. Like, you don't know me at all. You could think I'm crazy, and you're going to listen to me? I'm too skeptical to think you're going to listen. But here's what happens. So we have this, this redneck. He's like 18-year-old. He pulls up in this truck. I swear the tires were, like, as tall as this, this floor. And so we had five of us. Um, and the five of us, what we would do is... One would do the, the evangelism and the other four washed. What well, just so happens that my talk time is whenever the redneck pulls up. So I'm like, great, that truck's going to take like four hours to wash. And they all get to wash and I got to do the talking. So these two redneck, like eight te- teenagers, this is in North Carolina. They're like 18 years old. Um, they pull up and so God plants me sits, and I'm sitting right there between them and I'm trying to talk to them. And then, you know, I have no idea. I'm stumbling. This is literally my very first class at seminary. I went up there in 2001. I'm supposed to start in the fall. I was like, I know what I'll do. I'll take a summer class before I even start. The summer class, Dr. Reed's evangelism class. And I'm sitting there car washing like, oh man, I'd worked at churches before, but this idea of the cold call evangelism scared me to death, right? So what I do, share the gospel with him point him to Christ, help him see what he is, talk about his death, burial, and resurrection. And the guy's like, yeah, I want that. That sounds good. And I'm like, really? <laughs> like, wasn't expecting it. So I walk him through the plan of salvation, talk to, to him about putting his faith in Christ and repenting, etc. And he does this. This other guy who was just kind of half-hearted listening, um, he wasn't necessarily paying attention too much. But this other guy, he prays, and he, after he says amen, he looks and he goes, man, I feel different. And the other guy goes, that's the Holy Spirit, man. Like, he's like all into it. And all of a sudden, I see this time where, hey, he just had a, a glimpse into 
understanding the gospel. He's beheld Christ and all the fulfillment of the law. And he understands Christ is the true Messiah. He didn't understand all that, but he understood Christ died for him. And all of a sudden, he beheld for the very first time, and it changed his life. Another time, 11 years ago, whenever I first, when I finished seminary, uh, I felt much more confident then. I took my first job, and the very first trip I took was to Canada uh, on this mission trip with the TGK Baptist Youth Group. And um, mostly it was all college students that were kind of, you know, we're half-heartedly following Jesus, you know, in my opinion, they would say that same thing too now. I'm good friends with them now. Anyway, so uh, we go up in this trip, and while we're there, I'm supposed to lead the devotion for like 10 or 12 of them, and I just take them to this particular verse. And every once in a while in ministry, God gives you this gift of being able to like read a verse, explain it for three to five minutes, and whenever that happens, literally, you can visibly see like God tangibly blow their mind and rock their world. And all of a sudden, from that moment, like everything changes for them. He's actually come back to me and said, when that happened, whenever we read that verse and you kind of explained it a little bit, <sighs> rocked my world and changed me forever. Like, I got to see that. This is the verse I read. And this is where looking to Jesus. Now, this is the point that I made. And maybe it was new to him or maybe he had, it wasn't new. He had just never thought about it as deeply. Whenever we think about Jesus going to the cross, most of us think about the Garden of Gethsemane where he looks at it and he's like nervous and scared and like, ah, anything but it. Take the, the cup from me. I don't want to do it. Like it scares me. And, and while that's happening in his humanity, the writer of Hebrews looks back at that particular instance of Jesus facing the cross and more of a, not an immediate like struggling in the garden, but the totality of him coming in the incarnation in his entire life. And he says, that when Jesus looked at the cross, it wasn't that Garden of Gethsemane struggle like, oh, I don't want to do it. Instead, as he looked at the cross kind of in the totality of Jesus' life, when Jesus looked at the cross, he's like, yes, I want to go. Absolutely. Because if I go die, that means everybody else can be recipients of grace. And so this is what the writer of Hebrews says. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, basically that's Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11 is the hall of faith, all the people that have been Christians beforehand, he said, since we have all those people, we don't look to them. We've been, we're surrounded by them. Let us also lay aside every weight and every sin. So we put all these signs and run our race that sell it before us. So we run sanctification. What do we do in sanctification? Do we look to those people that have run the race? No, it says, looking to Jesus. This is the whole point of beholding. We look to Jesus. And what is it about Jesus that we look at? This is what he says. The founder and perfecter of our faith. It reminds us of the gospel. Who for the fear? Who for the being nervous? No. Who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross? He looked at the cross as joy because he knew that his death meant salvation and forgiveness for hundreds of thousands of, into the millions, right? For so many people. And because Christ knew this, it, he looked to the cross as joy, despising the shame. And because of that, he's now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And as I read that and I explained that, I saw visibly and tangibly those particular words go into the heart and mind of Tim Francisco and he just became changed. I mean, he's been, he's been following Christ like crazy. Lord, the Lord is doing amazing things in his life. He's been with me since we started the church six years ago. It's just been awesome to see what the Lord did to a college student just by a short five-minute explanation of saying, look to Jesus behold his glory and just be amazed at what he's done for us. So, 
If you keep going, it says in verse 4, and there appeared to them Elijah and Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. So here's the scene. Peter, James, and John, there's three, and there's the other three, Elijah, Moses, and Jesus. Obviously, the Elijah, Moses, and Jesus trio, much more significant than the uh, Peter, James, and John trio, although they're all six there. Peter, bless his heart. We know Peter's just such a strange fellow, right? Um, And it says, Peter said to Jesus, hey, rabbi, teacher, it's good that we're here. I mean, I'm glad, you know, these three are here, but it's really good that I'm here because you know what? I can build tents. You know, there's three of y'all. Let let me build three tents. Make one for you. Make one for Elijah. Make one for uh, Moses. It says, it's good that we're here. Let us make three tents. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Now, Peter has no idea what he's saying. Peter's just talking to talk. You know, there's people like Peter's just, and the reason why we know that is because Mark tells us right there in verse 6 that Peter is out of his mind and has no idea what he's saying. He says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. Peter's just one of those, you know, maybe you know somebody like that. Maybe you're like that, but it's, <laughs> you just talk to talk because we don't know what we're supposed to say. Um, now, it's interesting here. As Peter, bless his heart, you know, it's, he's talking, the Lord's kind of, the Lord God, the Father, has had enough of Peter run in his mouth. And so he's just going to basically interrupt Peter as he's like, it's so good that you're all here. I've got construction. I used to be a fisherman, but hey, I can build tents. And the Lord God, like the Father, like interrupts. And he says in verse 7, and a cloud overshadowed them. This is this, you know, just like it was in Exodus. And a voice came out of the cloud like, shh, Peter. That's not in the text. And he says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. So there's a lot going on right here in this particular verse. Uh, that's going on. And I, a lot of things I want you to see. First, um, just some, some Bible stuff that's being connected. This exact phrase, this is my beloved son, listen to him, is also in Mark chapter 1 verse 11. It's also in the other gospels. As Jesus starts his ministry, right whenever he's baptized, the voice of the father descends and said, this is my beloved son, listen to him, whom I love, etc. And so you also have it. So the exact same phrase is happening twice right here. You have it right there at the beginning of his ministry, and you have it right here at the, the top of the roller coaster going down, where you have kind of the bookends of the father saying, my son's starting his ministry, my son's beloved, I love that he, what he's doing, like follow him, listen to him, etc. So you have that, but some other things that, that are more significant that are happening, where it says, this is my beloved son, listen to him, and then poof, like everything happens, it goes all the way, the dust kind of settles, they're all freaking out, they're all on the ground actually. Uh, in another account, it tells us they're all on the ground, Peter, James, and John, and it says, and suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, here it is, but Jesus only. Those two words are quite important. Peter, likely unbeknownst, is doing something that he shouldn't have done. And God the Father recognizes it and needs to put a quick stop to it on what Peter's doing. Here's what's happening. Peter's like, it's good that I'm here. I I can build tents and I'll build three little tents. You know, one for all of you. Because we've got Moses and we've got Elijah and we've got Jesus. And they're all three, you know, we got just like that. And so God the Father kind of rushes in and says, wait a second. No, 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 no. You're putting these three guys like on equal planes. You can get rid of the idea of the three things. Poof, everything gone, and they see nothing but Jesus only. It's not like Moses, Elijah, Jesus, here's the, here's the mighty trio, all equal. So God rushes into Peter's, you know, harebrained idea and makes it all happen and says, listen, what is, what's the words? This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Not, hey, everybody, 
I got two other guys here too that are just as important as Jesus. Listen, no, no, no. Won't sit. Jesus only. Don't listen to anybody else but Jesus. Moses and Elijah are not on the same plane as Jesus. Jesus is the fulfillment. Jesus is, he's it. He's the pinnacle. He's God. No one else. Forget all the other people. Listen to Jesus only. Second thing is this. Look at the balance glory of Jesus, number one. Number two, God the Father shows up right now. Number two. Well, I'm just going to read it to you. All right. Oh, there it is. There it is. It's a different computer this week, so it's lagging. Listen, um, listen to the voice of God telling you to listen to Jesus. So there's a lot of things in there. First, God shows up and says, don't put... Moses and Elijah on the same plane. And as he's doing that, he also says, I mean, God the Father shows up and says, listen to Jesus. Sometimes when we talk about the Trinity, and the Trinity is just a difficult thing to talk about. Because we, we do know that there's, there's deference. We do know that the Son has submitted himself to the will of the Father. We do know that the Spirit submits himself to both Christ and the Father. And so sometimes when we think about this deference, we think that, you know, God's number one. Jesus is number two. We even say first person and second person. And we don't necessarily, we don't, we don't chant like that. But we, uh, <laughs> I don't know what that was. But uh, we, we kind of think like Jesus is number two. You know, number one's God. Like he's the most important. He's, he's God, God, God. And then Jesus is God, God. And the Holy Spirit's just God. You know, like we, we try to think of that way. And what God the Father is showing up and he's saying, listen, Jesus is God. Whenever we all go to heaven, God is spirit, John 4. The Holy Spirit is spirit. We know that. When we get to heaven, there's only one person in the Trinity that is still in human form. There's only one that you're going to see. When we get to heaven, what we see is Jesus seated on the throne. We get around Jesus and we worship Jesus. And so what the God, God the Father here is doing, and by no way is he diminishing his own um, God-likeness or importance, but he wants you to see a Christian is a follower of Jesus Christ. Christ is God. And God the Father shows up and says, listen, I want you to listen to the voice of God telling you to listen to Jesus. So what we need to see from this is this. I'm going to get to application. Man, I want to do it right now so bad. Um, is God the Father is pointing us to listen to Jesus. Listen to Jesus. And I'll just hint at it. Jesus is asking you to do a whole lot of stuff. He's really wanting you to be obedient to some things. Not because you're like, I have to, but because you want to. Like, the gospel drives us to want to listen. So, the second thing is, listen. Listen to Jesus now. The exclusive voice of Jesus now. Um, whenever I was in college uh, at University of South Carolina, I got a new car. I, I, for my entire life, from about age 15 till about age 20, I only drove stick shifts. Um, and I wish I had one still. It drives me crazy that I don't. That's a whole separate issue. But I had stick shifts for a long time. I had, my dad's like, you want to drive? Here's a truck. It's a 1983 Ford Ranger, your standard H. And that's, that's what I had. And it took me like, I was, when I was 15, I weighed, this is when you can drive in South Carolina back then, I weighed 88 pounds. It's ridiculous, I know. And so that meant like, I had to literally like get a run and start to do everything I could to push that clutch in with all my non-leg strength to drive. Anyway, so I learned how to drive on this stick and there's a whole lot of this for a while. Um, but when you're driving a stick, if you don't know anything about driving a stick, when you pull up into a parking space, you just leave it in gear. 
That's it. You can use the emergency brake, but you don't need the emergency brake if it's in any gear. First second, the car just won't go. Well, you can't, you can't do that with an automatic. Um, so I remember pulling up to my, my buddy's house, and uh, I'm just used to leaving it in gear. And so I pull up to my buddy's house, and it's in drive, and for some reason I forget the, uh, I'm holding the brake, and I, it's, it's, it's not a hill hill, but it's, it's, it's not a flat. It's, it's like one of those, you know? And so I, I remember uh, holding the brake, just leaving it in gear. All right, here we go. Lock the door, get out the car, shut it, and start walking. And as I start walking, I look, and, and my car, which is in drive, is starting to go back. And I'm like, oh, no. Oh, no. And so I run up to the car, and I'm like pulling, and it's not working. And I, I, I keep a keys here. And so literally, this is the most con- I wish someone videoed. I'm literally running down beside my car, and it's speeding up, and I'm having to speed up, and I'm struggling to get the keys, and I'm, I'm turning the key, and then I'm trying to jump in, and I'm jumping into the car, like slamming on the brake. It, ha- it rolled for like 15 to 20 yards, um, and the good thing is, or the, or the bad thing, is at the very end of the road is like one of the busiest, one of the huge busy street in Columbia, like an amazingly busy street. They lived in the neighborhood, and it would have rolled out, and so I'm literally running by the car, um, unlocking it, jumping in, slamming on the brakes. So I could have hit people's houses or mailboxes or big rocks or there's all kinds of stuff I could I could I could have done but what happened was is I had a stick shift and then I switched over to automatic I was still living like I was in stick shift land but I wasn't in stick shift land anymore right I was in automatic land and automatic land there's new rules there's all kinds of different ways to do stuff in automatic land. And I was still living in stick shift land. And if you try to live in stick shift land in automatic land, you know what happens? A wreck happens. That's what happens. And so this is my point. When I become a new man, I can't live like I'm an old man anymore. I'm a new man now. And now that I'm a new man, I don't get to live like old man anymore. You know what happens if I live like old man still as a new man? I, still, I, start, I continually still make wreck of my life. When the voice of God looks at you and says, listen to me, listen to me, it's not because he's trying to hold you down with rules and confine you and not let you have joy. Instead, the new man now lives in a new world. And this new world, he's saying, listen to me because this is where you're going to have life. This is where you're going to have joy. This is where you're going to have thriving. This is where you're going to really live for me. So when we say, listen to the voice of God telling you to listen to Jesus, it's because you're a new man. You're a new woman in Christ. And he's telling you, obey. Obey the things I say. I've I got some application. We're going to get to it, but I don't want to get too much. Um, but no one's around anymore. God makes Elijah and Moses poof, vanish away. And it says, and suddenly looking around, they saw no one except with, the, with them except for Jesus only. Spurgeon, oh, that we may have the eyes of our minds so fixed on the Lord as our one object, object, and that he may fill the whole vision, and we may see, see Jesus only. We don't want to make the mistake of what's going on here, where it's twofold. Number one, we focus on people. We try to make religious figures, heroes of our faith, which are good, equal with Jesus. John Piper isn't Jesus, or fill in whoever it is that you love to read. He's not Jesus. Don't make Piper or Spurgeon or whoever equivalent to Jesus or like Moses and Elijah. Similarly, like don't do what Peter says, which is, hey, Peter, um, did you not just see what happened back in verse 2 and 3? Jesus is transfigured. The, the 
fullness, the boundless glory of Jesus is on somewhat display. Maybe it's in its fullness right now. And instead of taking it in, Peter, what do you want to do? You want to go make tents. (laughs) You want to go work right now. Listen, the glory of God on display in our lives is always the most preeminent thing over work for God or the heroes of the faith. Always. Don't forsake beholding the glory of God to try to do the work of God. The work of God's important. It's certainly out there before us to do. But preeminent is beholding the glory of God. Last, down the, the walk down the mountain. So we've, we've looked to see the, and understand the, the identity of God. We've listened and understood that we're supposed to live differently. And lastly, we're going to learn. Verse 9, the walk down the mountain. Uh, this is just one instance of something they're supposed to learn, we're supposed to learn as well. Verse 9, they were coming down the mountain. He charged them uh, to tell no one what they had seen. This is common. If you read the Gospels, Jesus always has the messianic secret. In other words, hey, yes, I'm the Messiah. Don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet. Don't tell anybody yet. It's going to happen, but, but not yet. But on this particular verse, this is the first time he actually puts a time frame on it. Don't tell anybody that I'm the Messiah until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. So he actually says, don't tell anybody but you will get to after I rise from the dead. That rise from the dead starts making them think, we believe in rising from the dead, but what are you talking about? That's supposed to happen at the end of the age? What do you, what do you mean? And it says, so they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. What, rising from the dead? Like we're all supposed to do that. At the very end, we're supposed to start telling everybody? It seems like it's too late. Like the end. Like what are you talking about? And so... Uh, they come and they say, why did the scribes say that Elijah must come? That first Elijah must come. That's the question they come up with. Now, Jesus is going to answer that. But before we get to that, the Matthew account helps us understand. After he answers, Matthew says this last little statement. And the disciples in this moment understood that Jesus was t- saying that Elijah is equal to, or he was referring to John the Baptist. So when you read Elijah here, realize that Jesus is saying, um, in the same way that Jesus is the fulfillment of Moses, uh, John the Baptist in some ways is kind of the fulfillment of Elijah. So here we go. And so this is where it gets awesome. This is where we, we learn some amazing things. Why did the scribes say that Elijah must come first? And he said to them, Elijah does come first, John the Baptist does come first to restore all things. John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. The Old Testament over and over says, first Elijah must come to restore all things, to be the forerunner, to start everybody's hearts, to do those baptisms like in Matthew 3, to get everybody to start repenting for the, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And he sets the, kind of the stage for the Messiah to come in after that because the people's hearts have been excited and then he is the Messiah. And so he says, he says to him, Elijah does come first to restore all things and... You know the Old Testament scriptures well, but what else does the Old Testament scriptures talk about? It says after Elijah, the suffering servant comes, right? And he helps them see, okay, if after Elijah is the suffering servant, and you're saying John the Baptist is Elijah, the forerunner, the suffering servant comes after, that's you then. So he helps them see, I'm the fulfillment. So here it is. And how is it written that the Son of Man, that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? In other words, he helps them see, I'm the Son of Man. I'm the Messiah. I'm the one that's going to be treated with contempt. I'm the fulfillment of this. But I tell you, Elijah has come. John the Baptist has come. And they did to him whatever they pleased, as is written of him. So he helps them understand. He unpacks for them the fact that he is the, 
the, the Messiah. He is the, the one who has come, the one that has been told. He wants us to learn about him. So this is how I phrased it when it comes to the learn part. The thing that we need to learn about him is learn in his life, his cross becomes for, comes before his crown. All I mean by that is this. Jesus was the king before the incarnation. He already had the crown. Like he's never not been the king of the world, right? But when he incarnates himself, in order for him to ascend back to the throne, a cross comes between that. So in his life, in his humanity, in his incarnation from that moment, he was already the king. But we need to learn about the fact that Christ went through the cross to go back to the crown, to go back to the throne. In other words, we need to learn about Christ. We need to look to him and just understand his glory, behold his glory. We need to listen to him by doing what he says. And we need to learn. Learn that Jesus is beyond humble, beyond anybody else that could ever be. Philippians 2. We need to learn that he gave his life for you. You and I were in in desperate uh, measures and he gave his life for us. Learn that Christ suffered many things and was treated with contempt for us. As it says right there in verse 12. Learn that he died so that you and I could live. He wants us to learn that he drank every single drop of the divine wrath for us, the unworthy, helpless sinners. He wants us to learn that he died for us. And because of that, he is not just the king, he is your king. He is my king. He wants us to learn that when he rose from the dead, he defeated Satan's sin and death for us on our behalf, which he said back in verse 831 he was going to do. He wants us to learn that since he now sits on the throne and we have become believers by trusting him and repenting of our sin, and he sits on the throne in heaven, that we no longer in our own hearts get to sit on the throne, but now he sits on the throne. It's not like he sits on the throne in heaven, but we still call the shots in our own heart. He kicks us off so to speak, and now he sits on the throne of our heart. He is the king, not just of the world, but of your heart as well. We need to learn these things about him. He wants us to see these things. So here's how I want to conclude. First, we've seen to look. The second we think we've seen to do is to listen. And the last one is to learn about Christ. Do as much as we can to learn about him. And Mark, I'm sorry, and Matthew Uh, he has one little phrase that's not in the Mark version that I want you to see that I want to try to conclude with and then I got a little bit of application for you. In Mark chapter 17, verse 6 and 7, we know what's going on here. It says, the father comes down and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. And then verse 6, it says, the disciples heard this. They fell on their faces and they were terrified. So we see that when the cloud and dust settles, they're laying on the ground terrified. Peter's, Peter's not talking anymore. But who does talk? Christ does. Not only does he, does he talk to, fa- to highlight for the fact that it's Jesus only, not, Mark, uh, not Elijah or Moses. But look what he says. Look what he says. He says, rise, have no fear. Now listen, I don't want to over-spiritualize what's happening right here. But what's happening is absolutely beautiful. In the presence of the transfigured Christ, where his glory is being put on display, now, in the new covenant, we don't fall to our face and act terrified. As a matter of fact, Hebrews tells us that we can come into his presence boldly. And so, as the glory is being displayed to you, we're going to talk about how. When it does, we, don't fi- we shouldn't find ourselves on the ground scared to death, but instead, Christ is tenderly coming to us and saying, hey, the new covenant says this. Rise and have no fear. You can come fully into 
the presence of God. Now that you are in Christ, the change of salvation has already happened. And now you have been given the ability to boldly enter into the presence of God. Not fall in terror at God anymore. Instead, you can get up. Christ has touched you. He has healed you. And something has happened now that you can say, you can hear Christ look at you and say, Rise, have no fear. This is what the gospel's done for you. No more fear in life. No more fear of Christ. The tender Christ has looked at you and said, have no fear. Be in my presence. Behold my glory and become like him. Now, how do we do that? How do we do that? Because here's what's not going to happen. Jesus isn't going to take you up to Crowder's Mountain and transfigure. (laughs) And I know all of us would say, if I could just have something like that happen. I mean, like, if that happened, if really, like, think, it's so easy for Peter, James, and John to follow him. He transfigured in front of them. It's so easy to live for Christ. Like, I got to see the trans. If that, something like that would happen for me, then it would be easier. Then I would really, really, like, always refer back to that experience and be like, oh, yeah, he is awesome. Now I'm going to live for him. Here's the first application regarding Beholding the glory of God. And I want, I want us to understand just the amazing thing that we have in the Word of God. Because you do not need, as a matter of fact, I'm going to show you that if you were to have that experience, it wouldn't be as good as something else. And the something else you literally have right now. You have it. We know that we're supposed to behold the glory of God. And how are we going to behold the glory of God? This is how. Let me tie it into the journey. Um, I know that the journey, now that it's May, um, for some of you, like, oh man, I stopped in February. Um, (laughs) Whoops. Go back and get the book and read those first two pages where Jack and I say, this isn't a legalistic exercise. If you can't read all four, just pick one. If you can't follow along, just read a little bit. If you can't write, then just read. The whole point is be in the Bible. Like, be in the Bible. See Christ. It's not a legalistic, if I can't do it all, I can't. If I can't do all of it, I don't want to do any of it. Please don't do that. Because we need to behold the glory of God. In order for you to become like him, you need to behold him. You need to look at him. And this is why I say that if you had that transfiguration experience, if Jesus came down and took you to Crowder's Mountain, it wouldn't be as strong as the thing that we have. Look at this. Peter writes this. Okay? Peter writes this. Peter was there. He recalls that. Verse this is 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16. He's recalling back to the Mount of Transfiguration. This is what he says. For we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus. And watch this. Verse 16b, c. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Peter's saying, I was actually up on the mountain and I literally saw the boundless glory of Jesus when he transfigured. And he says... For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was born to him in the majestic glory. How do you know it's the transfiguration? Because what he says, he said, God's voice showed up and says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Peter is part of that. We already heard that God said it. Peter says, I was on the mountain and I saw the majesty of God when God's voice came. We ourselves heard the very voice voice born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. Okay, we're supposed to behold the glory of God. Good for you, Peter. Were you bragging? You saw it and we didn't. Look what he does here. This is where it gets awesome. 
And we have something more sure. What? Did you just say, I can behold the glory of God, something more sure than the transfiguration, Peter? Peter, if anybody could say it, it's Peter, right? I was there, but something exists that even more sure that points you to the glory of God. What is that, Peter? We have something more sure, and he's going to unpack it. The prophetic word. Okay, I think I know what that is. What is that? To which you will do well to pay attention as to a lamp shining in a dark place. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Peter knew the Psalms. Until the day dawns and the morning arises in your hearts. Watch this. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy. Oh, he's letting me know what it is that's more sure. Capital S. Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. Okay, Peter, I think I see what you're saying. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried on by the Holy Spirit. He's saying when men wrote, they wrote down with their own personalities like Mark. Mark was a terrible writer, but John was better and Paul and Luke are awesome. They wrote their own Greek styles or Hebrew, but as they did it, they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So it was their words, but God's words, and they worked together. And as they did that, they created graphe in the Greek scripture. And Peter's saying this capital S scripture is more sure. I had the transfiguration. There's something more sure than even being able to see that. Literally, it is the scriptures that were wrote, written by man, and they were carried along by the Holy Spirit as they wrote. And I'm saying, you become what you behold. You want to see the glory of God. You don't need the transfiguration. Peter himself is saying, the Bible itself puts on display the glory of God for you and leads you into becoming more like him. And it's even more sure than the stinking transfiguration. That's crazy. Application, so obvious. <sighs> Look to Jesus to see his glory in his word. You want to see the glory of God? You have it right here. God's words. These are God's words. You have the ability to see the glory of God right here. That's the first thing. The second thing is this. Peter, in the transfiguration, says, hey, let's go make tents. Uh, the second thing is this I want you to see. The second application is this. As he's making tents, he wants to be bold. He wants to help. But he, as he does this, he loses sight of something that would create a scenario where Jesus isn't the focal point. He would create a scenario where Jesus is just one of the focal points, sharing glory with Elijah and Moses. Incorrect thing to do. God quickly comes in. Um, Peter probably has no idea what's going on. Um, and God kind of makes everything vanish and puts the big huge spotlight right on Jesus and says, this is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Everybody vanishes and it's just Jesus only. It's very easy application. It's very easy to get distracted with work, with Christian things, with Christian radio, with Christian shirts, versions of the Bibles, testaments, whatever. You know, like it's very easy to get distracted with all the stuff about Jesus and miss Jesus. So, second application is this. Make Jesus' glory preeminent in your life above everything else. Make Jesus' glory preeminent above anything else in your life. Make looking to Jesus to see his glory and nothing else accidentally creep in as the most important. Over the work, over the people, over the things. Let your focus on Jesus be the preeminent thing in my life. And then I'll do the other things because I am beholding. And you'll become like him. 
The third thing is this, and this is just crazy awesome. Verse 4, Mark chapter 9. Right before Peter speaks out, Jesus transfigures. He's transfigured. And after he transfigures, look at this. And there he appeared to them, Elijah and Moses. And they were talking with Jesus. If there's a conversation, I'd love to stick my ear in and listen. Like, I want to know what's fly on the wall scenario. What, what are they saying? Like, Moses and Elijah and Jesus are over there talking. These other three are freaking out. Peter's just, you know, blabbering in just a second. But they're talking. They're talking. What are they saying? Well, this is where it gets really awesome because Luke actually tells us what they say. A little glimpse of what they say. In, in Luke chapter 9, um, it says this. Verse 29, he was praying. The appearance of his faith altered. He was closing, became like dazzling white. And behold, the two men were talking with him, Moses and Elijah. We already saw that part. And then in verse 31, it says, who appeared in glory. So Moses and Elijah are talking. Who appeared in glory, spoke of his departure. Now, this is actually the word exodus. He spoke of his exodus. So, you know, pun intended completely. Hey, Moses, Let's talk about the exodus, you know. And then it says, even after that, which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. Oh, wait a second. You're not talking about Moses' exodus. You're talking about Jesus' exodus that's about to happen in Jerusalem. So in the same way that Moses, which we've gone over this a bunch, Moses led the slaves out of captivity to the promised land. Jesus is doing that same thing. And he's saying, in the same way that Moses led slaves out of captivity to the promised land, I'm about to lead an exodus of those who are in spiritual slavery, out of captivity to slavery, to the promised land in heaven. And he's looking at them, and he's having this conversation with Moses. And he's helping Moses see, hey, uh, you want to know what gospel-centered is, Moses? You know what you did? I'm about to blow it up on the spiritual level here. What are they talking about? Of all things they could be talking about, what is Moses and Elijah and Jesus talking about? The gospel. Hmm. So what does that mean then for us? It's astounding in this narrative that so many communi- uh, connections are being made. So many beauties are being kind of put on display. So many things are, are being understood and brought to the surface regarding the exodus and regarding the gospel. But one thing that's for sure, the one thing they're talking about in this conversation is not, hey man, things come a long way. Jesus looks pretty good from 2,000 years ago. Like, no, nah. they're talking about the gospel. One conversation. This is never going to happen like in any other scenario. And Jesus talks to him about the gospel. So what does that mean then for us? I love to hear how our community groups, when they get together, already have someone pre-appointed to share the gospel. We need to be gospel people with the gospel on our lips, fluent in gospel language. The good news of Jesus dying for us on the cross. If we were to look at this and we would say, you know who needs to hear the gospel? Elijah and Moses. I mean, we would never say that, right? Why is Jesus telling the gospel to people that are already saved? The same reason that we need to hear the gospel who are already saved. You and I need to hear continually what Christ has done for us. That he has already declared us pure and white, pure and righteous, completely um, transformed and, and forgiven. You need to hear that. I need to hear that every day when I wake up or else I will not live like that. We need to have the gospel on our lips. 
in our community groups, in our homes, as husbands, as wives, as followers of Christ with our roommates. We need to have the gospel on our lips constantly, speaking it as much as we possibly can. Point others to him. So these are the three applications. Uh, We can make more, but let's just do those. So as we're going to our time of worship, I just want you to think and pray and ask God to reveal to you, what do I need to do more, Lord? Do I need to look? Do I need to look for your glory and your word more? Read your word, see Christ's glory so that I can become like him? Do I need to listen? I already read my Bible. I've got that down, but my life's not transformed. I'm still living like I have the old car. I need to live like I have. I'm still living as the old man. Now that I'm a believer and I've been transformed, I need to start living as the new man, listening to you and obeying what you say. You tell me to make disciples. You tell me to kill sin. You tell me to love others. You tell me to etc. etc. It's not that I need to look more. It's that I need to listen. Or perhaps it's last. You just need to uh, talk about him more. Gospel. You need to listen to who he is and let that be on your lips. Listen, however the Lord's leading you as we go into this time of reflection and prayer, you can sit, think, and pray for the entire time or you can just stand and revel in his glory and give him the glory. Just be obedient to the Spirit's leading right now. Let's pray. Jesus, be with us now as we worship I pray that as we worship you in song, God, our hearts will be drawn near to you. And as we uh, see your glory, as we see your glory as we worship, as we see your glory as we hear your word, as we read your word throughout the week, that we would more and more become like you. We would love the presence of your glory in our lives. We would cherish it and seek after it with our whole hearts and that we would be transformed into your image. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.